Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College, and today I'm joined by Ian Ona Johnson, the P.J. Morin Family Assistant Professor of Military History at Notre Dame. He is the author of Faustian Bargain, The Soviet-German Partnership, and the Origins of the Second World War. Ian, welcome to Carlisle. Thanks for having me. You're the first in-person one of these that we have done in, in quite a long time, so this, this feels really good. Um, I want to jump right in with a discussion about the challenges of writing the kind of history that you wrote, which is Eastern European operational kind of industrial war. At a time, I'm sure, when you were writing the book, you could never have imagined that we would see that kind of war again, yet here we are. So as you and I have talked about as we were setting this up, uh, one obvious theme for us to talk about is how your writing of the past influences the way you see the present and vice versa. So I'm just curious, any thoughts you have as the world has has changed since this book has come out? How do you see those two things? There's a, a probably apocryphal Mark Twain uh, aphorism that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I've always kind of kept that in the back of my mind. I don't think events you know uh, they don't repeat in in all of their detail but often there are analogies there are similarities there are parallels that give us understanding of of the present and i think in addition studying the past gives us a great sense of the context of the present how we got here and i think that's been very useful in understanding the conflict unfolding right now between russia and ukraine yeah, I keep a postcard with that Twain quotation on my desk, so I don't know whether it's true or not. As, as Dennis Showalter liked to say, it ought to be true if it's not. Um, give our give our listeners here the quick elevator speech on on Faustian bargain. What were you trying to do with the book? Um, what, what was motivating you to write it? The book came about in part because I was desperate for a dissertation topic. Always a good, <laughs> always a good driver. <laughs> I had started working on the Winter War and realized I had to learn Finnish with its terrifying number of declensions, uh, and was looking for a new topic. And I, I found this really interesting question, which was, by 1936, I could see evidence in both Great Britain and France that those governments believed Germany had already rearmed to a point where Germany was as strong uh, as their own military establishments. That struck me as remarkable, given that. Hitler had only torn up the Treaty of Versailles in 1935, at least publicly. So I was wondering, how did Germany rearm so quickly and so effectively? And as I looked at material, I discovered the answer lay in the Soviet Union, that essentially the German high command after the First World War, what was left of it, had concluded that uh, they were unable to maintain resistance against the victorious allies, but then attempted to go underground with a secret rearmament program conducted at least in part in the Soviet Union, dedicated to building tanks, aircraft, training officers, and essentially rebuilding the German military establishment away from the allied inspection teams and occupying authorities then in Germany. So that became the story, this 20 years of on-again, off-again partnership uh, that it's in, in its final iteration led back to war in Europe in 1939. Now, I'm guessing as you were putting this dissertation together, as you were converting it from dissertation to book, 
Well, maybe I should ask the question. Maybe I shouldn't presume the answer uh, that you weren't necessarily thinking, hey, this is a book that really has something to tell us about the world we're living in. And when you started this project, that that couldn't have been it couldn't have been in your mind, was it? Certainly not. And uh, it's it's distressing that it is relevant today. If it yeah, is, yeah. Uh, it, it's been odd to see, uh, especially as a junior scholar, my, my work has come up. Uh, the Polish prime minister mentioned the book. It's just been translated into Polish about a week and a half ago in the context of this new debate about reparations. Oh, yeah, it's, of course. Uh, it's come up in Germany and Russia in de- in analogies for the present moment in various ways. Uh, so that's been it's been odd to see that this history take on a life of its own as people try to draw on it to understand the present. Yeah, it is weird. My dissertation was cited in a Supreme Court case, um, <laughs> which I thought was just bizarre. Um, but yeah, you never do know where these things are going to go. Um, well, I wanted to jump in. Uh, the two things I wanted to jump in with, uh, as I'm sure you know, but may- maybe some of our listeners don't, uh, there is this debate in the American historical profession about whether we should be um, the, the phrase is presentist, whether we should write history that helps us better understand the present moment or whether we ought to write history that explains the life and times as people in that time period understood it. And the president of the American Historical Association just came out with uh, an open letter that is very much against presentism. That is, we should be studying the time people, the, it, the people in their times and not worry about its connections to the present. Um I want to get get your quick sense of that and then maybe talk to you about I, I saw at least three conversations that I think that this your your first book relates to. But I wanted to get your sense of this presentism debate that is very active among people in our our circles. Absolutely. And I should note that I, I don't have tenure, so I should uh, <laughs> maybe tread carefully to answering this. Um, you know, I think. I think that history, when done uh, when understanding that the past is uh, its its own country to some in, to some degree, to, to quote a, an English novelist, we do better history. And I can think of a number of examples of this. Understanding that the mores, the beliefs, the assumptions that informed decisions in the past that we're trying to understand are fundamentally different from our own it helps us to understand causation. It helps us to answer a lot of the questions we're seeking to answer. Uh, so, off the top of my head. Uh, thinking of your most recent book, When France Fell, there's something that struck me in there, which is the the panic that engulfs the United States after the fall of France. This sense, oh, we thought we had all this time and space to rearm carefully and cautiously. With France gone, there's this panic. And without understanding the context of that moment, American assum- military assumptions, strategic assumptions, it's hard to understand the panic and some of the very bad decisions made in the United States in the months that follow that. And I think that is the sort of history that takes seriously what 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 the moment was like for those living in it. Um, that doesn't mean, I think, that you have to avoid talking about the present. But I think the way in which we should do it is to do it by analogy, to do it by contextualizing the present rather than I think there is a danger when you try to inform policy debates too directly sometimes that you lose that that sense of context and understanding of the past. Yeah, especially if the history backing it is not very good, which is often the case when people are trying to push policy that uh, they, they, they selectively choose their history. I think maybe it's being here at the Army War College, but I'm, I'm coming down more and more in my career uh, in favor of this kind of presentist debate. Um, simply because we need an historical understanding if we're going to understand the challenges we're dealing with. So when I was going through your book, again, to prepare for this, reading it a second time, 
I think there were there were really three contexts, and I kind of want to get your your perspective on each of these. The first, the most obvious one, maybe, is that we are in a new war in Eastern Europe now. We are in a a situation, a moment where the Ukrainians have just led this this what appears to be a brilliant counteroffensive to shift the momentum of the war. There's a geographic continuity in this, so. I know you and I have talked about this. You get phone calls for media appearances on the war in Ukraine. Uh, how does having written this book change the way you think about the news you're seeing and the way you're thinking about this conflict? Well, maybe I should start by mentioning a, a terrible mistake I made, which was to attempt prediction. So yeah, I never do that. Yeah, <laughs> never, never do, do that. that. I so I got a phone call probably back in January, right as you know the, there were these growing warnings that the that war was coming, and. Uh, a journalist was asking me, what do you think is going to happen here? And I said, I, I don't want to predict. I'm a historian. I leave the prediction to the political scientists and the economists. Let them be wrong right, about let, how things are going to play out. Look like fools when it's wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And I, that happens more often than not. Uh, really pressed me. And I hadn't done a lot of media at that point. So um, I went on the record. I said, listen, I uh, from past experience, predominantly Russian forces, the Red Army, has invaded Ukraine a number of times in the 20th century. Like those conflicts were long and drawn out in the Russian Civil War, during and after the Second World War. I mean, Soviet occupation authorities took roughly 14 years to put down Ukrainian nationalism after World War II. I said, this, is, this seems like a, an invasion would be very costly, and I'm not sure if it's strategically worth it from Putin's perspective. So I, I just, I don't know how likely an invasion is. And then <laughs> about a week after that piece came out, uh, here we go. Um, well, if it makes you feel any better, I was just this weekend with a bunch of people who are Ukraine specialists, and we were talking <laughs> about the number of predictions they made that were wrong. But so it, it's not, it's a hazard of the of the profession, I suppose. Yeah, misery loves company, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so that that really shaped how I've tried to think about the current context. I, you know, my students were were desperate for some understanding of Ukraine. They didn't have a lot of that. I was teaching a class called War and Modern History in the spring, which was. I think quite relevant. So I re did the schedule. So we had two days just to discuss basically the context and background of the conflict in Ukraine. We looked a lot at Putin's historical pronouncements. You know, he loves history and using history to his own ends. Yeah. So I think that was really fruitful, giving the students a sense of context, continuity with the past, how we got here, and also how Putin is viewing the conflict through this historical lens. Um, so I think Hopefully, my work at least a little bit, you know, add something to those conversations. And like you said, I mean, this is where the Mark Twain quotation, whether he said it or not, is is so on point, right? It rhymes, right? There are things that are similar. Russia's desire to control Ukraine and control its kind of that that bloodlands between Russia and Western Europe, but the context is different. This is not the Cold War. This is not the Second World War. Putin may share some historical vision with the czars, but he's not one of them exactly. Uh, so it, it, this stuff is really complicated. And I, I know you know this too, but it's really difficult to explain this to people that there really aren't any easy answers when it comes to this stuff. That's right. I, and I think, again, there are other professions that try to provide those predictive elements that try to give all the answers. And I think their track record is fairly woeful. Yeah, we, so I, we, we run yeah. away from those people as a profession. That's right. Yeah. I think historians, the most frequent you know, thing that we provide is a sense of, well, yeah, it's it's more complicated than you thought, and here's why. Yeah, and some things will happen that you're not expecting, like a Ukrainian counteroffensive or the invasion in the first place. And I was in the same position you were in where friends of mine and family were texting me and saying, do you think he'll invade? Do you think he'll invade? And 
I was at least careful enough to use what one of my mentors used to call weasel words. You know, well, <laughs> I don't think so, or it doesn't look probable. And then when it happened, I always had that out, you know, like the 50% chance of rain, right? I mean, you can't be completely wrong. Uh, but there were two other themes, I think, in your book that were that, that just kind of rang true to me as I was as I was going back through it. And I, I, again, I want to get your your thoughts. A second is dictatorships and the way that they behave in really unpredictable ways, right? On the, on the surface, this partnership should not have worked between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, except as you alluded to earlier, when you realize the common interest they have, which is the destruction of Poland, which leads these these two dictatorships to behave in ways that without history, it's it's really hard to understand. Absolutely. And, you know, especially with in Stalin's case, but Hitler's certainly too, certainly by 1939 or 1940, there are almost no checks on their decision-making process. Uh, th this is one of the the, the issues with, with dictatorships, of course. They are so, in many senses, personalist in their decision-making style that uh, – there, there are there are very few limitations, and they can very abruptly make changes in their foreign policy. Whereas a democracy, it, it's a it can be a long, slow, and halting process for, to bring about major strategic change. In Stalin's case, he, and Hitler's too, there's a moment where Hitler flips the propaganda switch, says, "Stop saying bad things about the Soviet Union." In May of 1939, and instantaneously, the conversation is changed within German media, paving the way for the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So. We see with Putin too, this lack of checks uh, allows him to do something so dramatic and drastic. And we also see very likely that he was probably given a, a fair degree of bad information by those around him who were feeding into the, the assumptions and pre-held pre you know, pre, uh, beliefs that he had prior to the invasion about the quality of his troops, the technology available, etc. And we see this with both Stalin and Hitler too. Stalin, for instance, receiving this massive pile of intelligence that Hitler is likely to invade, but all of it is filtered through his preconceived conceptions, all the reports essentially written based on his own assumptions. Yeah, and who knows what's going on inside Russia right now, but but you know, Alexander Wirth wrote this book uh, in French called something like Putin Historian in Chief, and he makes the point that you made that that in these dictatorships, it's not just that the individual's viewpoint changes. Both the government and the civil society's view changes, cinema changes, literature changes. It's it's different from an open civic society like we have in the West, where people are free to express their views in almost any way that they that they wish. So again, the way that dictatorial systems function, and and the other point, of course, that we historians know is that dictatorships are particularly brittle in times of war. When when wars go bad for dictatorships, radical change is not an impossible thing to think about. Absolutely. And a lot of you know that there there were there were plans within the German military in the 30s to overthrow Hitler in the event of a military reverse, and unfortunately, by the time those reverses came, it was too late essentially. Yeah, and and who knows right now? But there are at least the beginnings of people in Russia kind of saying we, that this was a mistake. We shouldn't have done this. We need new leadership. Where that'll go, who knows? But but to an historian, you can sort of begin to see a little bit of a germ of something that that starts to sound familiar to us. That that rhyme is starting to come in. That's right, and yes, some events even in the last week, the rumors that we're hearing, senior members of the administration or the the Russian government and affiliates speaking out in a way that wasn't really the case in the past. Yeah, there's a third one, a third um, kind of echo that I that I had as I was reading your book, and that is. The discussions recently between China and Russia about a defense cooperation, right? Two states, again, that have 
things in common. They have interests, but they've also had a very difficult, very rocky relationship. But just as a kind of mutual fear of the West drove Germany and the Soviets together, it's kind of beginning to push Russia and China together. So I was thinking about this, too, in the way that we think about the way states define their interests and the way that their interests interact with their ideology, how flexible ideology can be when when they need interest to serve it. Absolutely. And th this is a question that I've gotten a fair amount of conferences. You know, is this one of those rhymes, uh, the this yeah. Russian Chinese relationship? And in some ways, yes, they're being driven together by shared antagonism to the international order as it exists right now, just as uh, Germany and the Soviet Union experienced in the 20s and 30s. There are some differences too. And again, this is a place where some of the historical context, I think, uh, does does give us some clues and helps us understand the present better. You know, Russia and China today, it's a very un uneven and unequal relationship. Russia's GDP is the smaller than Australia's. China is vastly greater. Russia is primarily a, you know, this raw material provider. It, Russia's in danger in some sense of becoming a uh, a subordinate partner. By contrast, throughout most, most of the 20s and 30s, Soviet and German GDP were comparable. Their military forces were comparable, as we see in the bloody fight on the Eastern Front. Uh, so it's, it's a relationship where I think the Russians already, and you, you see this a little bit in Russian state media, are wary of the Chinese in the sense that they're concerned about Chinese immigration into Siberia. They're concerned about becoming sort of second fiddle to Beijing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, some ways in which it rhymes and some ways in which it's different, I think. But I love the way that you phrased all this. It's typical for our profession where you kind of – it's a tendency to or it seems to or it's likely mm -hmm. to, you know, which <laughs> which are all the, the weasel words that we we like to use because who knows? that we, we, we simply can't predict what the future is going to look like. Uh, but to bring it back to writing, let me just throw a hypothetical out at you. If you were to start this project now, do you think you would have written it differently given the current context that you're in? That is to say, how much of the time you're living in do you think impacts you as a scholar? Well, I think it's impossible to avoid. I think we have uh, an aspiration to objectivity, understanding that that is in some sense impossible. Yeah, a noble dream, as, a noble as dream. Peter yes. Novick called it. That's right. And and a lot of that is the moment in which we're living. The, the fact that we do see rhymes, that we do see similarities in our own present moment informs us. You know, So much of the historical profession is filtering this vast sea of information into a narrative. And what we put in that narrative is in many instances defined by what seems relevant. And it's, it's impossible to avoid seeing it, at least in part, in terms of the world around you. So yeah, if I revisited the project, you know, um, Ukraine does not feature very prominently in the story. Uh, Poland features very prominently mm. in the story. I think I'd probably make more references to the place that Ukraine played in Soviet-German relations, this German hunger for Ukraine. Which appeared even Literal in the twenties and thirties. Yes, hunger. absolutely. You know, it, it, at one point, one of the firms that I studied and whose papers I used, they acquired a Belgium-sized chunk of Ukrainian farmland in the nineteen twenties to do agricultural experimentation in the hopes this might provide food and raw materials, essentially, in the event of a future war. Clearly, there's some similarities with Hitler's thinking uh, ten or so years later. That didn't make it into the book. It was in the dissertation, didn't make it to the book. Things like that might have been in there. And uh, it does make you wonder a little bit about <laughs> about our profession and, and how we, we craft narrative. Yeah. As I was going back through your book, I was also reading Antony Beaver's new book on the Russian Civil War, which focuses a lot on the, the Rada, this kind of pro-German Ukrainian government that gets set up at the end of World War I. And, and my good friend Alexandra Ritchie is working on a project now about the meaning of Poland in, in the German imagination in the interwar years. So 
Um, you know, the, the the absolute criticality of this, what it also does, as, as I think most historians of the Second World War know, the, the center of gravity is in the east. It's not the Battle of Britain. It's not Normandy. Like the real center of gravity of this war is in the east. That's not to say that stuff in the west is unimportant. But if you really want to understand the war, you really have to start in Ukraine and Poland. And, you know, you've got to start in those areas. Um, and then you, your your understanding can 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 go out to these other places like Britain and, and, and Overlord. Uh, but the war begins because of this dispute about what post-war Eastern and Central Europe is going to look like. That's what it's about when it starts. Absolutely. And there's this fascinating moment that I think often disappears from Western historiography of the war in November of 1940, where at this juncture, Germany and the Soviet Union are partners. They're trading with each other. There's a German naval base operating on Soviet soil. And Hitler invites uh, Molotov, the Commissar of Foreign Affairs, to Berlin to discuss basically turning their existing partnership into a full-fledged alliance against the British Empire. They essentially go back and forth. The Soviets actually send a proposal at the end of November what it would take to bring the Soviets into the tripartite pact, um, which ironically had started as the anti-Comintern pact uh, aimed yeah. at the Soviet Union in essence. History is really weird sometimes. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you even see on the Soviet side in these negotiations privately, Stalin suggesting that we should get rid of the Comintern uh, and maybe talk more about national communism, national Bolshevism instead of international communism so we can fit ideologically with our future partners. I mean, these remarkable transformations within the Soviet Union. And in the end, Soviet demands are too high. They want control of Bulgaria, Turkey. Uh, they want essentially to be able to annex Finland. They want territorial concessions from the Japanese. And Hitler says, too, too, too much. This is too much. Uh, I, essentially, he already had control of the Balkans. He didn't want to make concessions. And a few weeks after the Soviets send their alliance proposal back, he decides uh, he issues the orders for Operation Barbarossa and preparations to begin. Hmm. Well, I want to switch gears because I can watch the sand running out of Buck's hourglass here. Um, we're doing this podcast interview in a conference room at the Army Heritage and Education Center where you have come to do some research. So tell us what you're working on right now and tell us what, what the project is that's brought you to Carlisle. Well, this is another one that's uh, it's sort of in progress being driven by a couple of questions. So the tentative working title, which my editor has proposed, is Ridgeway's Moment, the United Nations Military, the Korean War, and the Origins of NATO. So what the project looks at is essentially why on earth did, uh, did, the, um, did the United States, did the Roosevelt administration decide – uh, to commit to make the United Nations the center of American grand strategy as the Second World War drew to a close. And one of the most remarkable aspects of that is our plans that were essentially assumed to be going forward to create an international military force composed of groups, uh, soldiers seconded from China, uh, the Soviet Union, France, Great Britain, and the United States. And the idea was that these soldiers would be essentially an international army that would preserve peace in the post-war moment. They got a four policemen. The four policemen. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And Roosevelt was very seriously committed to this. The Truman administration was very seriously committed to this initially. Uh, the rudiments of a general staff began meeting in New York in, in early 1946. Over 55% of Americans said they favored turning over the entire U.S. military to U.N. control and oh, wow. in, in polled yeah. in 1945. Completely forgotten though, because it was a dead end. By 1947, the Soviets had made clear for various reasons they didn't want to go along with the project. U.S. military planners were increasingly concerned what this actually meant in practice, and essentially the project fell apart. 
But a lot of the elements of the conversation that had begun there would then go on to inform debates about the Western Union and the, the essentially the origins of NATO. In fact, in the midst of these army negotiations in New York, General Matthew Ridgway, who's really at the center of my story, and you know Ridgway Hall and his papers <laughs> are all right here. Oh, so much good stuff here. Yes, he uh, he is seconded while he's heading these negotiations in New York to simultaneously help negotiate the Rio Treaty, which is the Latin American precursor to NATO. It's essentially got it's NATO is plagiarized from essentially these agreements made in uh, with the Latin American partners in 1946, 47 and 48. He helped write that and then ends up becoming the second uh secure as you know second commander of of NATO forces. So I can already think of two conversations you're going to get dragged into. Uh, one, of course, is the wisdom of some of these multilateral uh commitments, which has been a, a topic of debate. And the other is the the focus um, about what NATO ought to be doing in the Indo-Pacific theater to help balance China, which has been controversial between the United States, which wants a more active NATO role, and the French and others who don't want to see NATO play that role. So expect your phone to ring again when, when <laughs> yes. this project gets underway. What did you learn from writing Faustian Bargain? What What lessons did you take away as a writer as you sat down to think about this second book? You know, it's uh, there's no substitute for hard work and just sitting in front of a computer and and, and writing. Um, a, just a little bit about how the manuscript came to be. I uh, I had a, a contract with Oxford University's trade press while I was finishing grad school. Right right after I defended, uh, maybe a month or two afterwards, I, I got a contract. Which is unusual. Offer. I mean, you you you're, you may be too modest to say this, but let me just tell our listeners that is very unusual. That is that is really well done. Well, I was, yeah, very fortunate. I had a just a terrific editor at Oxford. He gave me a lot of his time, Tim Bent. Yeah, we had the same editor. I that's had, I that's had Tim right. as an editor for a project. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, initially with with Tim, the 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 slightly modified version of the dissertation went through a peer review process. So I got feedback, and Tim essentially said, you know, this is great for a dissertation. This is not going to work for a trade press because the book was thematic. It was not organized chronologically. It, it didn't really center on characters or their choices, the sorts of things that drive narrative. So over the next two years, I essentially rewrote the entire dissertation, reorganized it chronologically, got it into this form where it did have uh, did have story and characters. Uh, Tim still didn't think it was quite there, so I did a third round of major revisions. Uh, and and by the third round, I think of the 160 or 150,000 or so words from the dissertation, maybe a third of that had made it into the book. About 100,000 words were new. They required new research. They required going back through my notes, some international travel. Uh, and, and what emerged, I think, at the end was something fundamentally different that made hopefully broader claims while also trying to carry this narrative forward. And uh, again, the, with, without the editorial guidance, it, it, probably, it would not have gotten there. But uh, that this was is the probably process. another discussion for another time. But we should we should talk about the differences between these two audiences and academic press. You are pretty much writing for maybe 15, 20, 30 people in your field to demonstrate your skill as an historian, the new things you found, the trade presses to bring those ideas to a wider audience. And they are two very different kinds of writing. It, it does not surprise me that it took you a long time to break that bone and reset it. Yes. it's And, and there are so many challenges for, for doing it. I, I enjoy telling the story. My dad is a novelist. Uh, so I, I have you know he I got feedback from him on the manuscript as well, and I think that was really useful in telling a story and bringing it to broader audiences. I do think is a, a you know it should be a, a 
part of what we think we do as historians is speak to broad audiences. But there were some challenges. You know, those 20 or 30 people that the dissertation, I think, probably would have appealed to a great deal. You know, I, I got one review that was it was mostly positive, but someone said, you know, there wasn't enough about this particular area. And I thought, oh, you know, I had five pages in the dissertation on this and I had one sentence in the book because of the need for, you know, to, to minimize space on that topic and maintain the narrative. So there, there are trade-offs you have to get used to balancing. So is this book aimed at a trade audience as well? Yes. This is also with Tim with okay. Oxford University's Trade Press. Yeah. And then this, this is challenging. I mean, it's not easy as a writer. You have to take um, rather complex topics that maybe you've been researching for several months and you've got to You've got to present them in a way that that doesn't necessarily get into the depth and complexity of all that research. It's not an easy thing to do. And as a historian, you know, you get so excited when you find something in the archives that makes your point. And sometimes you find a, so many documents that you want to cite and that you just can't weave them all into even even not in a trade book uh, into yeah. your into your final product. I think every historian has had an editor tell them, well, you may be excited by this, but nobody else will be. And you have to, OK, all right, now I got to figure out whether that stays in or what I do with it. Uh, but, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, you want to be you want to write a book that's credible both to your colleagues and to the wider audience. And that that can be a challenge. Walking that tightrope can be a real challenge. Um, and anything in particular you think that you took away from having written a book that made you say, okay, the next time I do it, I'm going to do this differently. And it's different with the dissertation, right? I mean, you're starting from a project brand new. You're not going to have to reshape it. You can you can build it the way you want from scratch. It is. Yeah. It's, it, it's a fundamentally different starting place. And I'm I'm excited about that because I think one of the great challenges in turning the dissertation into a trade book was trying to maintain the argument and the evidence while fundamentally crafting something new. That was really difficult. From the start, I have a sense uh, from, you know, I've been working on this off and on since 2016 during gaps in the editing process on the last book. I've been doing archival research all over the place. So I've, I've got a sense of the characters. I've got a sense of the key moments and choices, a sense of where the argument's going to go, though I'm trying to let the archives lead me in some different directions as well, the archival evidence. Um, so in some sense, it's, it's been really nice to have this fresh start and just uh, be able to uh, let things sort of play out. Uh, more in a narrative form, even as I'm taking notes and, and looking at evidence in the in the archives. Um, so th that's going to be fundamentally different from the last project and something I'm I'm excited about. It'll be a good challenge for you. Well, I see that the sand is running out of the hourglass, and I know you have to get to the Matthew Ridgeway papers, which are sitting just a few feet away from us, and I don't want to take uh, too much time away from you. So, Ian, I want to really thank you for taking time to sit down and, and chat with us. So this has been a great conversation, and hopefully one we can continue. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.